and welcome. My name is Amelia, otherwise known as DJ EJ, and this is Club Crime, a true crime broadcast recording live at KTCU. Oh, this is this is going to be an interesting episode today, and I'll tell you all why in just a second. But super happy to be back in the studio, as I always say. Super weird that it's our 18th episode. I don't know why. I remember saying last week that I was like, oh, it's so weird that we're in double digits. But today I was like, this is my 18th episode. And some and for some reason, like number 18 in my brain is just like so big. Maybe because 18 is like the adult number of like when you're 18 years old, you're an adult now. And so I guess my podcast in podcast years, years being episodes is 18 years old now. So kind of a big deal, but if you missed out on last week's episode, please go listen to Club Crime on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't followed us on social media, please go follow at Club Crime Official on Instagram and at Club Crime Official on Twitter slash X because that app will not let me have my full name. But without further ado... Let me introduce my special guest for this podcast. It's me. I'm the special guest today. There is actually no one else in the KTCU studio but me. And I'll explain why. So every week when I'm going through trying to pick who I'm going to ask to be my guest on this week's episode and I'm looking at my story, I was just going through and I was reading this week's story and... It's rather short. And in my mind, it felt really unfair to bring on a guest and give them this super short story when every other guest has gotten a rather lengthy kind of substantial story in the history of club crime. And so I thought, well, why don't I challenge myself? I've never not had a guest on club crime before. And why not be my own guest? Why not see if I can carry on for a substantial amount of time in this podcast on my own with one story? And so that's what I'm going to do today. And I'm super nervous, but I'm super excited. And it's a good story. But I thought what I'd get into is, you know, I always ask my guests, you know, what got you into true crime? Why are you here today? And I realized I've never really talked to you guys a lot about myself before. I know in the first episode I was like, oh yeah, this is why I like true crime and this is how I got into it. But you guys don't really know much about me besides that. So let's do a brief get to know DJ EJ for just a quick second. So what's going on before I get into like the, you know, I was born on this day and this is my zodiac sign. I thought, what's going on in my life, my life lately? Well, I'm super excited. I was super excited this morning because last night I found out that my 8 a.m. for this morning got canceled. And my 8 a.m. is a dance class, which on Monday mornings is quite a bit. So I just thought, okay you know, this is going to be the best. I'm going to get so much sleep. And then I forgot to change my alarm. And normally for my 8 a.m. classes, I wake up at like 6, 6.30. So my alarm went off this morning. And once my alarm goes off, I can kind of go back to sleep and sleep in, but I was awake for the rest of the morning. So I had a solid like four hours of just 
doing nothing before I had to go to my 10 a.m. So that was my morning. (laughs) But other than that, my day was great. My classes went fine. I just kind of been busy, went to work today. But about me, let's talk about why I'm here, why I'm doing this. So the biggest question I get is, why, why do I work here at the KTCU radio station? And my response to that is not that interesting. <laughs> I was looking for something to do on campus, and I, of course, I'm a theater major, and I'm involved pretty heavily in that, but I wanted something that was outside of that, that like was my own, and that I could make friends who were outside of my major. And so I was walking by the KTCU building one day and I saw an ad saying, hey, are you interested in being a DJ? Please email this email and say like you want to try out. And so I did. And it wasn't even a tryout. I think I just like talked to my managers and they were just like, yeah, like if you want to train, you can train for a couple weeks and then we'll give you a shift. And so I had a regular shift for a while. And then at the end of my first semester, I was like, I kind of want to do a true crime show because I was originally going to do maybe like a music show of some sort. And then I was like, well, so much of my life revolves around music. I The first thing I do really in the morning is turn on my music and I listen to music when I'm walking places and in the car and I'm a theater major and I love musical theater and musical theater is musical, if you didn't know. So... I just thought, well, why not do a true crime show? I love true crime podcasts. Um, I've really gotten into the podcast My Favorite Murder, which if you haven't listened to it, go check it out because that is where I get so much of my inspiration from. And I just thought it would be cool. And so club crime really stemmed from the idea of me wanting a format where I didn't have to just talk to myself. So kind of ironic that I'm doing this today. So I just wanted to bring my friends on and just be able to tell my friends true crime stories because most of my friends are, like I said, theater majors and don't know a lot about the true crime world. And so I get kind of an outlet for an hour and a half every Monday night to just talk about my weird and odd fascinations. And I guess other general stuff about me, I'm a Leo, if you're into zodiac signs. Um, I love to dance. I love to sing. Um, and (laughs) my mom, like uh, everyone to know, because my parents listen to this live every single Monday night, that she is here for me. She and my dad are here listening. So I guess I do in spirit sort of have some special guests tonight, but they're always my special guests, my mom and dad. So I guess we should get into it. I'm going to tell myself my guest duties. I've never told myself this. So tonight I'm going to tell myself a true crime story. It is my job to react, ask questions, add in my own personal anecdotes, and just add to the story in any way that I want. That is so weird. I've never told myself that before. And I guess I can't, you know, be like, oh, like, Amelia, Amelia to Amelia. You have to promise the listeners that it's a surprise story, except I wrote this story, so it's not a surprise to me, but it's a surprise to all of you. So tonight's story is the Chicago Tylenol murders. Sources for tonight's story include NPR News, PBS NewsHour, Crime Museum, BuzzFeed Unsolved, and we all know her, we all love her, Miss Wikipedia, which 
I keep finding myself just using Wikipedia for like random things in my everyday life. Like I think the other day I wanted to know how like chocolate was invented. Just I think randomly. And <laughs> I went to Wikipedia and of course then I kind of thought back of like, well, you have to take Wikipedia with a grain of salt. So do I actually know how chocolate's made? 95% sure that I do, but 5% maybe not because some of that, you know, information could have just not been true. So let's get into the story. So background. On September 28th, 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman of Elk Grove Village, a suburb of Chicago, woke up with a sore throat and a runny nose. Her parents gave her one extra-strength Tylenol, and a couple hours later, Kellerman was hospitalized after becoming heavily sick. By 7 a.m. the next day, Kellerman was dead. The same day, a 27-year-old postal worker named Adam Janice from Arlington Heights, Illinois, died. Two relatives of Janice then that went to his house immediately following his death, Stanley, 25, and Teresa, 19, began to experience headaches. Both of them took a Tylenol Extra Strength capsule from Adam's house. Stanley, later that day, Stanley died later that day, and Teresa died two days later. So all of these deaths in rapid succession all linked to Tylenol extra strengths. And my mom would like everyone to know that in ninth grade, she wrote a research paper on the Tylenol murders. So I guess we have an expert here in spirit tonight. So I guess, mom, you can vet any of my information because you knew about this before I did. And you probably did more research than I did, so you can vet any of my information. Three more deaths occurred within the next few days. 35-year-old Mary McFarland of Elmhurst, Illinois, 35-year-old Paula Prince of Chicago, and 27-year-old Mary Weiner of Winfield, Illinois. All three took Tylenol a short time before they died. Police had begun to suspect foul play among all of the deaths, but most specifically, the the Janices. Nurse Helen Jensen, an Arlington Heights public health official, was sent to Adam Janice's house to investigate. At the house, Jensen found the open bottle of Tylenol Extra Strength and how it was missing six pills. The bottle was then turned over to investigator Nick Fishos, who smelled an almond-like scent coming from the bottle, and then turned the bottle over to toxicology for testing. And we've talked about cyanide before in the past season, and if you don't know, cyanide smells like almonds. So, kind of interesting, and I guess it's... It is a little interesting because I think there is naturally occurring cyanide in almonds. I know that there's naturally occurring cyanide in apple seeds and cyanide is found in most like, you know, what they're called like rock fruits, like peaches, nectarines in those large pits. There's usually cyanide found or some other kind of poison. That's why you can't ingest the like hard pits of pit fruits. Except I don't know why you would want to ingest the pits, but just a heads up to anyone out there who was curious. So when the test returned, 
the almond-like scent had turned out to be cyanide, like I said. Every single Tylenol capsule that remained in Adam Janice's bottle was laced with cyanide, equaling almost three times the lethal amount needed to kill a human. Chicago authorities held a public hearing advising the public not to take Tylenol for the time being. And let's look up how much cyanide is needed to kill a human. I hope, I really hope that me looking this up on Google is not going to alert the authorities or anything. I promise I'm just an innocent bystander, um, but I've heard that there's like quite a few, quite a few like Google searches that can get you arrested. So I'm a little nervous right now. How much cyanide is needed to kill a human? This is for research purposes, Google. So a fatal dose for humans can be as low as 1.5 milligrams slash kilograms milligram slash kilograms body weight so a lethal dose is one to three milligrams per kilogram of body weight for vertebrates okay that makes more sense so that's honestly three times that amount so 4.5 milligrams in each of those capsules that is insane how much cyanide was in those so the Janice's bottle was compared to the bottle of Tylenol taken by Mary Kellerman, which was inventoried by paramedics. Both bottles were found to be from lot MC2880. Johnson & Johnson, along with its subsidiary McNeil Consumer Products, manufacturer of Tylenol, issued a mass warning to the public regarding Tylenol as well regarding Tylenol, as well as recalling all bottles from lot MC2880. So this was a big deal. Like, think of in your household, you probably just have some, like, maybe one or two bottles of Tylenol laying around. Now, imagine everyone in your neighborhood has a bottle of Tylenol in their house. Then imagine all the neighborhoods surrounding you have those bottles. And then you know, imagine that being in your entire area. That's how much Tylenol they had to recall. That's like hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of people that they have to recall that from. After further investigation, lot MC2880 was found to not be the only contaminated lot. Other lots were found, such as 1910MD and MB2738, which were traced to Mary McFarland's Tylenol bottle, and thus expanded the recall further. Tylenol was temporarily halted in production and advertising. This did not stop, however, copycat poisonings, such as Strychine, added to Tylenol bottles found in California. Because of this, more than 31 million bottles of Tylenol in circulation were recalled in the United States, making it one of the largest ever pharmaceutical recalls, which, oh my goodness, I don't even understand how you get that many people to give back their Tylenol. I guess through the news and maybe like letters, it's easy, but think back then of like, there was no social media, there was no iPhones, there were telephones, but we didn't have as quick of means to communicate things as we do today. And they didn't have that back then. So in my mind, recalls like that, that were from this time period, 
seem kind of implausible to me. And I guess that sounds kind of ignorant coming from someone who's almost never grown up without, you know, this advanced technology. But the idea of getting these fast recalls done is just so insane to me. Because even think of people who maybe don't have that much access to television or they don't have cable or, you know, the like letters will come very slowly. Like it probably took weeks to get that many bottles recalled and think of how many people could have been affected by copycats within that time. So now that we've talked about the recall, let's get into the suspects. So investigating the Tylenol murders was puzzling to Chicago investigators. Johnson & Johnson was able to determine that the cyanide was added to the pills after the bottles left the factory. According to police, someone must have taken the Tylenol bottles from local grocery and drugstores and laced the pills before putting them back on the shelves. James William Lewis was accused of sending a quote-unquote ransom letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding $1 million to stop the Tylenol murders. Lewis told police that whoever added the cyanide to the pills bought the bottles, added the cyanide, and put them back on the shelves. Lewis was also found to own a book on poisoning, with his fingerprints found on the pages regarding cyanide. Lewis admitted to writing the letter to the police, but insisted that he was not responsible for the poisonings. Lewis was convicted of extortion and sentenced to 10 years in prison, but investigation and comparison of DNA samples taken from the poison bottles to Lewis's DNA proved him to be not a match. Lewis died on July 9, 2023, at age 76, denying responsibility for the poisonings until his death. And his recent death is kind of what inspired me to write this specific true crime case and why I'm covering it is he died very recently. And up until his death, he was the prime suspect in this case. And now that he's dead and they never really got that many further leads from him, police investigators are now kind of once again at a standstill. He was the prime suspect, and now he's dead. There were a few other suspects, which we will cover, but none of them really led anywhere. So it's just kind of interesting how, once again, this case is cold, and how it was seemingly for a while maybe could have been solved, and then in July... Lewis dies and it's just kind of unsolvable again, which is kind of how most unsolved cases go, unfortunately. So the next suspect was Roger Arnold, a dock worker at a Jewel Osco in Melrose Park, and he was the the second suspect investigated by police. So Lewis was the first, Arnold was the second. Arnold was reported to police after bar owner Marty Sinclair overheard Arnold talking about having killed people with a quote-unquote white substance while acting more and more erratically due to his dissolved marriage. Arnold had worked with victim Mary Reiner's father at a warehouse. Arnold's wife had been treated at a hospital across the street from the store in which Reiner bought her cyanide-laced pills. The book, The Poor Man's James Bond, containing instructions on how to make potassium cyanide, was found in Arnold's home. 
Arnold was held by police several times, but was never charged. But in 1983, Arnold was arrested for shooting and killing John Stancia. Arnold mistook Stancia for Marty Sinclair, who was the bar owner. Arnold was convicted of the killing in 1984 and served 15 years in, of his 30-year sentence for second-degree murder. Arnold died in 2008, but his body was exhumed for the same DNA testing as James Lewis. His DNA did not match what was found on the poisoned Tylenol bottles. One other DNA sample was tested, that of the, quote, Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Kaczynski denied having ever possessed potassium cyanide, but the first four Unabomber crimes took place in Chicago and its suburbs from 1978 to 1980, and he would stay with his and he would stay with his parents in the area occasionally, but the Unabomber's DNA also did not match, which kind of random fact. <laughs> Whenever I wear a hoodie and I put the hood over my head, <laughs> And my parents see me. They call me the Unabomber. And I always thought, like, I had a general idea of who the Unabomber was. And then when I started doing all this true crime research, for a while I was considering maybe covering the Unabomber. And I looked him up and I saw a picture of him with his hood over his head. And I was like, yeah, I kind of do look like the Unabomber whenever I wear a hood over my head. Which is so kind of out of pocket, but it's so kind of silly and funny. So let's now talk about the aftermath of the the Chicago Tylenol killings. So hundreds of copycat killings began to take place all over the United States. In 1986, a University of Texas student named Kenneth Ferries was found dead in his apartment. His cause of death was found to be cyanide poisoning. Tampered and anison capsules were determined to be the source of cyanide found in his body, but his death was eventually determined to be a suicide as he had obtained the poison from a lab in which he worked. Johnson & Johnson was regarded by the media as having handled the Tylenol murders positively. Despite this, though, many lawsuits were filed against the megacorporation by people in the Chicago area. All of the lawsuits were settled in 1991, and they were settled for an undisclosed amount of money, but I'm assuming probably a lot. The Tylenol murders reshaped the entire way the pharmaceutical industry packaged their products. Tamper-resistant foil seals became the industry standard as a bottle not having one could be easily thrown out. Which, think of that. A case this big is the reason why every time you open a brand new bottle of Tylenol or aspirin or any sort of, you know, over-the-counter drugstore medication, it has foil. And that is just so... If you open up your bottle and that you see that the foil is missing or has been tampered with or has a hole, you know not to use it. And it seems like such a simple thing that you don't even really think about. And most of the time you open a brand new bottle of pills and you're just like, oh, you know, there's the foil. Got to take it off. Sometimes it's really annoying and there's like no tab. And so you have to like dig your fingernail underneath to get it open. But at the end of the day, that seal could 
basically be saving your life, which is kind of incredible. The industry, the pharmaceutical industry, also began to move away from using capsules as they could easily be taken apart and tampered with before being put together again. Solid, quote-unquote, caplets were then rolled out as they were more difficult to be tampered with. So a caplet is just think about like a solid pill, you know, very compacted. It's powder that's compacted so heavily that it's almost rock solid. And that's typically the pill you take. Or there's, you know, gels now, which are also a standard to help you more easily swallow a pill if you cannot swallow the harder caplet. The Halloween following the Tylenol murders saw a 20% decrease in candy sales. This was because many communities across the United States believed that their children would also be given poison candy. Trick-or-treating was discouraged in these communities, which is kind of an interesting foreshadowing to my Halloween episode, so stick around for October 30th because you're in for a real treat. (laughs) And that is the story of the Tylenol murders case, which, like I said, a pretty short, short case, but still really fascinating. It's, it's just like a lot of these cases, you know, affect laws or they affect things like this, but you don't even really think about like, case like this affecting pharmaceuticals I just I it kind of blew me away when I was researching this of how you know one case like this can change the entire an entire industry not just a law or two because true crime you almost kind of put hand in hand with a law changing of like you know a girl goes missing and then we get an act to an act to make sure that like police better handle that case or something. But when it changes a multi-billion dollar industry, that almost kind of seems like above anything else. I don't know that it just seems weird. And maybe I didn't explain that very well, but that's just kind of crazy to me. So we're not done yet. I'd like to talk about some interesting things happening in today's times. So we've talked about the Ruby Frankie case, which as of right now, there's no new updates, but I have been watching videos that some of my friends have sent me regarding the case, not necessarily the case, but just old, like, you know, there the channel that the Frankies ran was called Eight Passengers and it's old clips and it's, it's so so appalling one of the clips I was sent was um one of the daughters walks downstairs and her hair is braided and it's braided because she had just washed it it wasn't really dry and that's how she was wearing it to school and Ruby Frankie proceeds to tell her daughter no you're not presentable you're not going to school like that we only have five minutes before we go you look ugly go upstairs and dry your hair and oh my I was speechless after watching that I was like how do you talk to your daughter that way it's like it it costs nothing to be a decent person it really doesn't it it costs nothing just be a nice person and 
I guess sometimes it could just come from insecurities and other things like that, but it's just like, it's so appalling of something like that happening. I don't know. I guess I was raised by two great parents who are listening right now, two very loving parents. So it's just kind of, it just makes, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Um, some other things we had talked about recently. So the Kristen Smart case, Paul Flores, he was recently stabbed in prison. So let's honestly look up that because I haven't heard anything else since he was stabbed. And (laughs) I'm laughing not because I'm happy that he got stabbed. I just think it's really funny how my local paper had to really just write an update (laughs) to like tell my local you know community back in California hey you know let's not support this let's not be happy about this but in the most recent update it does say that Paul Flores has returned to the Pleasant Valley State Prison after being attacked and he was attacked there in, in August so yeah, it's kind of safe to say I don't think Paul Flores is ever getting out of solitary confinement ever again, especially not back in the Pleasant Valley State Prison. He's not going to get released back into the yard. Um, my mom has just asked, what do I want? Is that in regards to what recent case I would like to talk about? Because you know what, mom, why don't you give me one and we will research it together. But We've talked about that. We've also talked about recently the Danny Masterson case. No real big updates in that other than people are still just super mad at Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher, which very rightfully so. Um, It also just makes me upset that, you know, two other cast members wrote letters in regards to, you know, supporting Danny Masterson and... I feel so conflicted because I loved that 70s show. I did talk about that. And it's just hard when there's people that you grew up as some of your biggest role models and now they just can't be your role models anymore. They kind of hurt. Like, it's just, it's hard. It's really hard when your role models kind of fail you. But (laughs) my mom said, what do you want for having said we are wonderful? Oh, what do I want? Oh, oh, do I get, do I get a prize? Oh my goodness. Will you buy my Halloween costumes? Oh, this is a good way to end the episode. I'm going to tell you what what my Halloween costumes are going to be for this year. So my first one has been planned since last year and I'm going to be Eric Cartman from South Park because Last year, I was (laughs) Bart Simpson from The Simpsons, and I was like, well, what if I just carry this out of, like, continuing to be just, like, weird cartoon characters? And not weird as in, like, obscure, but just, like, stupid, funny, silly cartoon characters. So I'm going to be Eric Cartman, and then I'm going to be Carrie Bradshaw from Sex and the City, which 
one of one of my favorite shows of all time. I was going to be Samantha, but Samantha doesn't have as many iconic outfits as Carrie does. So I'm just going to be the iconic pink shirt with white tutu that Carrie wears on the side of the bus. And then my final outfit or my final costume was decided today. <laughs> um, my roommate and I are going to go as Willy Wonka and Violet from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I'm going to be Willy Wonka. And would I have ever thought of this costume in a million years? No. But is it probably going to be one of the most iconic costumes that I've ever worn? Yes, it's going to be so fun, and I'm so excited for this year's Halloween. But I feel like I've just rambled on for way too long, <laughs> so I'm going to end the episode here. I hope you all enjoyed my solo episode today. I will have another guest next week. We will get back to our regular format. It's just I felt that this episode or this story was too short, and, you know, my my guests honestly deserve more. So I left the short one for myself. But if you guys enjoyed the solo format, please let me know on Instagram because maybe I will do more. Because honestly, I did kind of enjoy this. It was kind of refreshing to do something by myself, even though I do love, love, love having my new guests every week. So I guess to myself, I thank myself for rejoining the club for the 18th time. And to all my listeners, please join us next week for another true crime story when we have another guest joining us. And this has been Club Crime.